If you would please take your Bibles and open to Luke chapter 8. The Gospel of Luke chapter 8. For the past six weeks, this is the seventh week, we have been studying miracles and what they signify, what they mean. And we've been doing so through the prism, or the lens of miracles in the ministry of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Thus far we have studied and examined the turning of water into wine, the feeding of 5,000, healings that were requested by others for someone. So we have the royal official who asked that his son be healed, the centurion for his servant, and the four friends who lowered their friend through the roof in front of Jesus. Then we have those healings requested by the ones in need. So we have the leper in Matthew 8, the two blind men mentioned there as well, and then later on in the book of Matthew we have two other blind men who ask that they be healed. And then we have those healings that happen in confrontation. Um, they happen to happen on the, on the Sabbath. We looked at them last week, the healings on the Sabbath. But in these cases, Jesus goes to the individual. So we have the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Jesus goes to this man and in essence confronts him and says, what's up? Do you, do you want to be healed? And then the second case was that of the blind man in John chapter 9. And let me just read you a part of the story. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. For while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. The blind man did not ask to be healed. He certainly didn't ask Jesus to spit on the ground, make mud, and then put it on his eyes. This is something that Jesus does, and then he tells him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. We have looked at these parables and what they signify. But today we will look at another series of miracles, focusing on one in particular. The type of miracle? The casting out of demons, or devils, as some translations have it, or evil spirits, unclean spirits. Follow along, if you would, as I read from Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse number 26. By the way, this account is found also in Matthew and in Mark, but Luke gives us the most detailed um, account of this particular miracle. Beginning in verse number 26, Luke 8:26, They sailed to the region of the Gerizines, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? 
legion, he replied, because of many demons, many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this to the, in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. If miracles are difficult for some to accept, or simply dismissed in the modern mindset, then this is certainly the case when it comes to the matter of demon possession which is seen by many as merely primitive superstition. Why is that? Well, the modern mind prizes or focuses on the material aspect of reality. But if you think about it, if you focus on the material reality, uh, the material aspect of reality, then what is not material cannot be proved. You've really limited yourself to one particular aspect of reality. I think it be, would be wiser for us to acknowledge that there's a lot that we don't know. But sadly, the church, I think, has gone along with this way of thinking. We've become materialist in the sense that we focus only on the things that are tangible. Um, and so when it comes to the miracles, uh, alternative explanations are given. And when it comes to the matter of demon possession, alternative explanations are given. One author notes this, ancient opinion ascribed to demon demon possession any disease which involved loss of control, epilepsy, delirium, convulsion, nervous disorders, mental derangement, and which therefore suggested the presence of an invading power. Modern medicine can provide other explanations for most of the symptoms. So when we come on someone in scriptures, and the Gospels in particular, someone who is demon-possessed, we might be tempted to say, oh, this is, in the case of, we'll see it in a minute, of the man whose son was demon-possessed and would throw him into the fire, he would lay on the ground and froth and say, oh, that's epilepsy. That, that, that's not demon-possession, that's epilepsy. Um, and one finds, I think, that modern Christians have taken this path, that they see demon-possession as really just... Uh, sort of a vague description for various disorders and we, and we shouldn't refer to it as demon possession. Um, the author that I just quoted then makes the point, this does not mean that demon possession can be dismissed as outmoded science. Some have suggested, amazingly, that Jesus merely accommodates himself to the surrounding culture and the people that he lived among believed in demons and demon possession and so Jesus said, okay, I'll work with that, I'll go with that and... Um, I'll I'll pretend that I'm casting out demons. One writer, at least one writer, has even said that Jesus spoke of demons even though he knew they did not actually exist. Um, 
One writer in that same vein, from a reading of the record, it clearly appears that Jesus believed in the existence of the demonic. So this is a different tack. Yeah, he believed in it. This does not mean we must call things by the same names. Okay, Jesus believed in demons, but yeah, we don't have to call them demons or the demonic. But the gospel records, I think, are very clear that Jesus did cast out demons. Some translations, as I said, use devils or evil spirits or unclean spirits. And as we start our examination of the miracles of Jesus casting out demons, we must affirm the reality of the unseen world. This is a subject for another time and perhaps another series of sermons, but I would argue that we really miss the boat when we talk about natural versus supernatural, that we divide reality into two categories, natural and supernatural. So if you look at the passage right before our text today, it is the miracle of Jesus calming the storm. And so some commentators would say, see, Jesus has power over nature. He calms the storm. And then when he casts out the demons, he has power over the supernatural, that he's got both bases covered. Um, yeah, I would disagree. I think what we see in these two miracles is the authority of Jesus over that which is seen and that which is unseen. We hear this in the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. That reality can be divided into those things that can be seen and those that cannot. I think it is a mistake. I think it is wrong to speak of the natural and the supernatural. I think it is far better to speak of those things which are created and that which is uncreated. This is from the Athanasian Creed. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father, uncreated. The Son, uncreated. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, uncreated. The Father, infinite. The Son, infinite. And the Holy Spirit, infinite. The Father, eternal the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal, just as there are not three uncreated, nor three infinities, but one uncreated and one infinite. It means that there is one thing that is uncreated. That is God, three in one. God is uncreated. Everything else is created. Everything else. Only God is uncreated. So everything else is created and not like natural, supernatural, that's the wrong division. It is between God and all creation. So let's consider this story that we read here in Luke chapter 8. Luke tells us four things about this demon-possessed man. Uh, by the way, just a side note, um, in Mark's account, in Matthew's account, there are two men in Gerizim, uh, two men who are demon-possessed. Luke appears to focus on one of the individuals. We are told that the man was naked, had torn clothing, that he lived apart. He'd been driven by the demon into solitary places. That is, he's apart from human society. Thirdly, he had what I would call superhuman strength. Not supernatural, but superhuman strength. He was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, but he was able to break his chains because of the demons that were within him. And number four, he frequented the places of the dead among the tombs. 
Matthew adds, by the way, that he and his companion made the area impassable to travelers. People could not pass by there because they would be attacked by these men. Mark tells us night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Here we see what Satan and his minions, demons, and evil in general, intend for human beings. We saw this in our study of evil. Using N.T. Wright's definition of evil, it is the force of anti-creation, anti-life. It's that which is against creation and against life. The force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good work of space, time, and matter. And above all, I would highlight this, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. Here in this story, we have a clear picture of evil at work, in this case through demon possession. It does present an extreme case. I would argue that many cases of demon possession are not nearly this extreme. In fact, they may be so they may seem so natural that we're not even aware that there is demonic activity at work. I think this is usually what we think of when we hear, oh, that person was demon-possessed. We think of someone who's a raving lunatic, if you were someone who's screaming, running around, and just acting crazy. But we are, in fact, given in the Gospels other accounts in which Jesus cast out demons which had different symptoms. And I'm going to read this. You can follow along or you can look if you want. I find this very striking and something for us to take to heart. The first I want to mention is found in Luke chapter 13. And here we have a woman who is crippled because of the demon. She is crippled by demon possession. On a Sabbath day, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put her hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. So the possession there was seen in the fact that she was bent over. She was physically crippled. In Matthew chapter 9, we have a man who is mute because of a demon. Matthew 9 verse 32. While they were going out, a man who was demon possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. So the fact that he was mute was the result of being demon-possessed. And then what I mentioned earlier, the man whose son was demon-possessed. Not only did the demon abuse him and throw him into the fire, he was also mute and deaf. This is in Mark chapter 9, verse 17. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I ask your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. By the way, just parenthetically, these do sound like symptoms of epilepsy. Okay, But it is very clear that, at least from the text, that this is demon possession. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into convulsion. He rolled to the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help, help, him, help us. 
If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. And then we have a general statement found in Luke chapter 6 verse 18. Those troubled by evil or unclean spirits were cured. There it's interesting that what Jesus does for them is seen in terms of a a physical cure. But it is in fact also the casting out of demons. Now, from these incidents, we should not assume, and I want to make this clear, we should not assume that all who are crippled or mute or deaf or in need of a cure are in fact possessed by a demon. I think that's very clear. But we can see from these stories that the purpose of the demonic is to dehumanize, to destroy, to abuse those who are made in the image of God, to enslave and distort those who are human beings to scar and destroy them. Jesus came to redeem humanity. He came to redeem those made in his image. And so it makes sense that those who are trying to destroy human beings, and here comes Jesus who is coming to redeem human beings, that there would be a natural conflict between Jesus and the demonic. This is what we see and what we hear in the Gospels. Just a side note, it has been suggested that the, the amount of demon possession, if you wish, spiked before the coming of Jesus, in, in a sense, anticipating this confrontation between the Redeemer and those who are trying to destroy humanity. Um, we, we still, I would argue, still have demon possession today, but not on the scale that we see it in the Gospels. In this story, we hear the demons say, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. In Luke chapter 4, we have another account. Um, This is in Luke 4, beginning at verse 31. Then he went to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. So this is a Sabbath day miracle. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. What I hope becomes clear in this sermon, at least, is that Jesus has absolute power over creation. Not nature or supernature, over all creation. Those things that are seen, those things that are unseen, visible and invisible, including demons or the demonic. Let's return back to our text. You'll notice at least three things. First of all, the demons recognize and identify Jesus for who he is. This is all the more striking if you read through, as you should. The story right before this is when Jesus calms the sea. 
And at the end of it, we read that his disciples said, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. His disciples don't know who he is, but the demons certainly know who Jesus is, that he has authority. Secondly, the authority of Jesus and his power are recognized. What happens when the man sees Jesus? What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. And Jesus asked, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. They know that Jesus has the authority to cast them into hell. His name is Legion. A Roman legion consists of 6,000 soldiers. And while it is possible, and we see that the word legion is oftentimes used simply to describe a large number, a bunch of people, just a legion of people, not exactly 6,000. We are told in Mark's account that there were 2,000 pigs in the herd. Here we're simply told it's a large herd, but there are 2,000, which would mean that there would be at least 2,000 demons that enter into these pigs and cause them uh, to run off the cliff into the sea and to be drowned. Thirdly, I find Jesus' response to the demon noteworthy. And that is that the assault on Jesus is not responded in kind. That is, it's not evil for evil. Jesus does not respond to evil with evil. Um, They beg Jesus for permission to enter the pigs. And Jesus gives them permission. Some might ask why. This, This seems rather cruel for these pigs. I mean, they have, after all, they haven't done anything. Innocent bystanders. These are just suppositions on my part. Um, But we are told in Mark chapter 5, the demon said, it's not yet our time. It's not the end of time in which they'll be cast into hell. And so Jesus doesn't cast them into hell. He, in fact, throws them. He casts them into the pigs. Also, pigs are, I think, an appropriate vessel for the demonic, as we see they are unclean animals in the Old Testament. But I think there's several things that they are suppositions, but I'm fairly convinced of. And that is, Jesus wanted to give visible proof that the man was no longer possessed. Because someone would say, well, yeah, the demons are still out there floating around. Um, How do we know this man isn't possessed? Well, okay, here's tangible proof. The demons have been cast out and cast into the pigs, and the pigs have thrown themselves into the sea and have been drowned. The same time, Jesus challenges the value system of the local people. What has more value, 2,000 pigs or one made in the image of God? 2,000 pigs is not an insignificant number of pigs. And in terms of financial return, I would assume a fairly significant return. I mean, they are valuable. But one human being in the eyes of God has far more value than 2,000 pigs. We're told what the locals thought. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. You're bad for business. I mean, you need to leave. What is the result of this miracle, this exorcism? It is a reversal of the man's condition. It is a transformation. Where he was naked, now he is dressed. Where he had been roaming, 
Now he sits at Jesus' feet. Where he had sought solitude, he wanted to be away from people. Now he is associating with others. He is now in his right mind. As one commentator noted, the man whom neither chains nor men could restrain was sitting in a docile manner before Jesus. He who had terrified others as he ran naked through the tombs was now clothed. The one who had shrieked wildly and behaved violently was now fully recovered. So radical was the transformation that the townspeople were stunned and frightened. Yes, they were, and they asked Jesus to leave. Why? Luke doesn't tell us. Mark hints at it that it's about the pigs. Um, when they heard about the pigs, that they'd lost the pigs, they pleaded, they began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. They had lost a lot of money. In this miracle, what happens? I would argue it's what happens in all miracles, but it's much, it's much clearer here to us, and that is that the man's humanity is restored. More than that, that was plenty, he is redeemed. He has been redeemed. We hear this in his desire to follow Jesus. He now wants to be a disciple. He wants to go with Jesus as Jesus travels throughout Palestine. But Jesus says, return home and tell how much God has done for you. And what does the man do? He goes and tells how much Jesus has done for him. Because Jesus is God. This is what God has done for him. See, redemption is much more than mere restoration. Restoration is not a small thing. A person who is blind, receiving their sight, in a sense a part of their humanity has been restored, that's not a small thing. Someone who is mute or deaf and they are restored, that is significant. It is, in fact, an important thing. But there's more to the story than that, and that is redemption. What Jesus does in the miracles is he sets these individuals on the path toward the new creation. We sang it, by the way, in a hymn today, Love Divine, about the new creation. That's where we're all headed. And granted, you could get to the new creation as a blind person, as a deaf person. But the process begins with these miracles. When your sight is restored, when you can now speak, when you can now hear, when those who are crippled can now walk, all of this is headed towards something, the new creation, in which we will be not like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. We will be far better than that. We will be redeemed. We will be restored, the new creation. So, what do these miracles tell us? Let me suggest uh, several things. First of all, there is such a thing as a demonic. This is the unseen reality. Um, I would say, I think we should confess that as God's people, at least in this generation, we've really dropped the ball here. This is something we don't talk about. It's something we don't know that much about. And we don't seem to be particularly interested. It's been said that one of Satan's greatest tactics is to get people to think that he doesn't exist. Well, we see in these miracles, and this one in particular in Luke 8, that there is such a thing as a demonic. But secondly, this unseen reality of the demonic can be manifested in the seen world. So are there demons? Yes. 
Well, how do we know? Well, in this particular story, we know because look at this man. This man apparently used to be a normal guy. Now he's running around naked through tombs. Uh, He doesn't want to be with other people. He cuts himself with stones. He cries out. He's apart from society. Here is tangible proof in the scene, the person of the unseen. Thirdly, there there may be a connection I want to be very careful here. There may be connection between sin and physical realities. We saw this last Sunday, uh, the healing of the man, the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. Um, Jesus heals him and he sees him later in the day and he says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, which really seems to indicate that there was a connection between something this man had done or was doing and the fact that he was an invalid. And then the healing of the man, the paralytic, who's dropped down through the roof. What does Jesus say to the man? Your sins are forgiven. Later on, Jesus will say, take up your mat, go home and you know, walk and go home. But the first thing Jesus says is your sins are forgiven. Jesus does not say this to everyone he heals. Okay? We live in a fallen world with all its brokenness. Just because somebody gets sick does not mean that they have sinned. Okay? But there may be a connection. In some cases, there may be. And James talks about this uh, in the last chapter of his book, that if somebody is sick that, um, and he calls the elders and he needs to be anointed with oil, there's a real indication that it is because of sin that this person is sick. That is possible. It's not always the case. And I want to make that clear. But it is possible. We hear this, by the way, in the Old Testament as well. uh, How that there is between our sins, which we might see as invisible, and, and the physical reality. So in Leviticus 18, Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled. So I punished it for their sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. You're like, this is a victimless sin. No, it it affects all creation. And so there may, in fact, be a connection between the two. Two more things. First of all, the demonic may manifest itself in ways that we do not expect. In this story, I think we would say, yeah, that guy is demon-possessed. I, I can diagnose that that man is demon-possessed. But what about the woman who is crippled in Luke 13? Or someone who is mute? Or someone who is deaf that Jesus healed? So how is it that we are to recognize the demonic? I mean, do we have some type of spiritual Geiger counter that we know whether or not the demonic is present? Um, First of all, let's say, let me say, I think we fall far short in this area. I think we are blinded to the reality of the invisible, of the unseen realities. We have been influenced by the surrounding culture so that we begin to see these things as primitive superstition. And we do not think in terms of the personal, we think, we think in terms of forces or principles. Um, demons are personal beings. They have names. 
and they assault human beings. They are not merely forces. But again, I think we are far too modern, far too scientific in our thinking, and so we only think of impersonal forces, institutional forces, if you wish, rather than personal responsibility. I would suggest to you today that we need to see the demonic in that which is anti-creation, anti-life, which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. I would argue that if you've been looking at the news the last few weeks, we have seen the demonic at work, and we have failed to see it. We have failed to recognize it. We have seen legislatures applaud their decision to end human life. In New York, the legislature has allowed the killing of a child up to one day before it is supposed to be born, before he or she is to be born. In Virginia, the governor has suggested that a child can be born and then put aside and made comfortable while the mother and the, father de- or the, mother and the doctor decide whether or not to kill the child. It is the killing of someone made in the image of God. The killing of an unborn child is an attempt. It is anti-life, first of all. And it tries to destroy God's image bearer in that child. Am I suggesting that the legislatures in New York are demon-possessed? No, I'm not. But there is something really at work here. And we should not be blinded to that fact. Just as this woman is crippled because of demon possession, we need to make sure that we think in terms of decisions people make, that if it is anti-human, if it seeks to destroy human life, there's something seriously wrong, something that is going on. They treat the human as less than human. We might tremble and really sort of bemoan the fact that these things are going on in our country, in our nation. We could not imagine the day would come when legislatures would approve the killing of children. But there's one more thing that these miracles teach us, and that is that Jesus has all authority over all creation. He is Lord of all. Um, In the Reformation hymn by Martin Luther, Mighty Fortress, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has ruled his power, his authority to rule through us, his power to be seen in us. Jesus is Lord over all creation, the things we can see and the things we can't see, visible and invisible. We should never forget this. The demons recognized him. Shouldn't we? Let's pray together. Our Father, in many ways, we have domesticated the gospel. There are things that make us uncomfortable, and one of them is demon possession. It it seems to belong to a past time, to a time of superstition, primitive things. 
And then we are shocked when we see terrible things happening. And we wonder, how is that possible? And we forget that Satan and his cohorts have one ambition, and that is to assault you. That's not possible. So instead, he assaults those who bear your image, human beings. And a part of the way he gets this done is by human beings assaulting each other, killing each other, murdering each other, abusing, raping. And as your people, we might be stunned by this, shocked even, because we have forgotten. that this is what it's all about. This is what Satan is up to, trying to destroy human beings. At the same time, we might be tempted to despair, we forget that the Lord Jesus is Lord of all, of things we can see and things we can't see, of the human and of the demonic, the things of creation, like the winds, the waves, the human condition of illness, paralysis, blindness. At the beginning of our worship today, and every Sunday, we sing, I will not fear. And the reason that we should not fear is not because we are brave, but because Jesus is Lord of all. May we not forget that. Forgive us when we have. By your Spirit, remind us from time to time. I thank you for bringing us together today. I pray for Robert, who's not with us. We don't know what's going on with him, but you do. Watch over him and keep him safe and bring him back to us. We're so grateful that the G's are back with us. Safe and sound. Now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.